Our next speaker, Daniel Trilling, is the editor of the New Humanist magazine. He's a journalist and writer. In his book, Lights in the Distance, he draws on years of reporting to build a portrait of the refugee crisis seen through the eyes of the people who've experienced it firsthand. Uh, Daniel Trilling. Daniel, your grandmother was a refugee. Is that correct? Yeah. Um, Is that right for me to ask that, talk about that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, actually, two of my grandparents were um, displaced. Both um, were born in what was then the Russian Empire and both ended up in the UK eventually, although um, I think it's quite telling that my grandfather although technically was displaced and his family had to leave because of the Russian Civil War, they had a lot of money and were within the UK within a few months and it didn't seem to be a big part of their life after that. Whereas my grandmother was a refugee twice in her life. She was displaced um, by the Russian Civil War, fleeing Kiev with her mother when she was eight years old. Um, And then her family settled in Berlin, which she had to then flee again in 1939 and came to the UK. And... Sounds as if you grew up with her stories a bit. Um, she like telling you the stories. Yeah, so uh, I either lived in the same house as her or she lived a few doors down from us for, for all of my childhood. And it was her way of keeping me and my brother amused when she had to look after us, actually. Um, and uh, I think also because she was partially sighted. So talking was the main way that we, you know, the main kind of interaction we had with her. Um, and she would very often tell us about incidents in her life relating to those two episodes of escape and flight and refuge. And I think there were a number of things that really stuck with me in those stories. I mean, obviously, I think to hear, you know, their, their kind of adventures in one way or another, especially if you're, you're bowdlerizing them a bit for children. Yeah, but, well, they rendered as such. Um, yeah. But another thing that... that um, came through very strongly and then I think it was particularly in my mind when I was doing my research on on people moving across borders in similar ways today was the way in which it involved this constant process of kind of hiding who you were or concealing parts of your identity Uh, you know she left um, Kiev on false papers for example Um, then coming from Berlin to London in 1939 this was at a time when Uh, Britain, like most other Western states, was unwilling to accept Jewish refugees uh, at all, really. And then again, she had to get in by not giving the correct details on her paperwork. Um, She was also uh, a stateless person in between the two wars. Um, So I think certainly when I was then going out and doing research on people today, I had had a sort of eye for for those kind of things. And it it made me realise just how much of a constant that is in that form of migration and that kind of displacement. But it's interesting, already listening to you, one thing that I find disorientating is already that the language um, multiplies. You know, so we've got displaced person, refugee, asylum seeker. Um, and can, can you say a bit about that? Because very often those, those words, although I imagine that somewhere they've got strict definitions, get politicised and employed to spin things one way or the other. What do those terms mean? Have they got, have they got clear definitions, say, migrant as opposed to asylum seeker and refugee? Well, they, I mean, it depends on the context, really. I mean, I think 
migration more broadly is an area in which particular terminology definitions are heavily contested and fought over, and there's always a kind of struggle to force certain kinds of meanings into them or widen the meaning or narrow the meaning. But when it comes to uh, refugees in a broad sense, um, I think it's particularly acute because um, I think maybe often there's a tendency to think of refugees as just... Uh, or the, the state of being displaced as just something to do with a, a bad thing happening wherever a person is from and them fleeing it and that really being what it's about. But it's also about the fact that although you know, there's a general understanding today that there are such things as human rights, universal human mm. rights, your rights are only generally guaranteed by membership of a nation state. Mm. So you know, most of your rights come through citizenship of a place. And if you are forced from your home country, you lose access to those kinds of rights very often. And I mean, in, in historical terms, the inability of European states to guarantee rights to displace people between the wars um, led to you within know, Europe. catastrophe within Europe. Yeah. I mean, and and after the war, there was a system set up to try and prevent that from happening and guarantee a proper system of rights for people who've been displaced. I mean, the fact that we're already zooming in on Europe tells you about one major problem of it, which was it was deliberately Eurocentric from the start and still is very incomplete in who it considers worthy of protection when you and, say and it why. Was, it, you mean refugee law was deliberately Eurocentric? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the yeah. UN Refugee yeah. Convention of 1951 yeah. initially only applied to people within Europe yeah. and defined refugee in a particularly narrow way. Yeah. Um, it's since been widened then Formally in, in expanded, different ways. has it, since then? Yeah. But um, then you say that, but, Daniel, but, but then you still, you still sort of acknowledge the fact that the idea of um, a universal human rights depends upon you belonging to a nation-state. That's an extraordinary thing for it to be contingent in that way. Yeah, and, and I mean, to go back to your question about language, I think, you know, this system of legal protections for refugees internationally is an attempt to fix that, okay. you know, to, yeah. to fill that gap. And it exists because states fundamentally want to retain the right to say who can enter and who can't. Um, and refugee law should provide an exception for this, where if somebody crosses a border in search of asylum, they're not supposed to be punished for that, they're not supposed to be pushed back to somewhere that's dangerous, and they're supposed to have their case treated on its individual merits, so you can't just say, oh, you know, everybody from this country, we will treat in this way. Um, and on paper, that can sound like a fairly simple process, but actually... It involves this very complex and, and often very violent form of filtering, you know, who meets the criteria, who doesn't. And I think for that reason, this proliferation of language has grown up around it with these very definite-sounding categories, um, either in legal terms or in, in a more kind of colloquial discourse. For example, I mean, the biggest one relating to the refugee crisis in Europe of the last few years is this distinction that's made between genuine refugee and economic migrant. Yes. Um, and I think just looking at the way some of those terms have changed over the last few years, you can see how politicised the whole process is. So this term migrant, yeah. you know, was, I think, hardly used before 2014 or 15. And if it was used, it was... It was, a, it was a term more associated with animal life, you know, migrating birds, you know, migrating flocks of animals. And then, and then suddenly it rises to the surface just at the time as European powers are trying to discredit and keep out the people arriving on their shores. Um, and then, 
just just to finish on that, that I suppose what um, my research was trying to do and what I've tried to convey in the book is the way that, although the categories can sound very definite, there are, you know, when you look at it from the perspective of the people trying to navigate those systems, people are neither one thing or the other so many times. There's such a grey zone in between and, and the effort to kind of enforce those distinctions rigidly is what causes great damage to people's lives, I think. You make, you make it very clear that, in fact, the crisis, if that's the right phrase, certainly 2015-16, wasn't simply about the movement of people, but the enforcement of borders. And borders aren't just something marginal to a state, but penetrate right to the heart of it. For instance, hostile environment, etc. The border's almost systematised within the structures of the state. Mm -hmm. Is that a fair representation? Um, yeah, I mean, I think it comes down to the fact that in the world today where globalisation has led to, you know, communication, capital, goods, certain categories of people being more mobile than ever, states have tried to retain the ability to um, control or manage the movement of people within and, out and to and from their territories. But that rather than thinking of that border system only as a, you know, a fence or a wall or a line at the edge of a, a, a territory is actually a much wider ranging and more complex system for, as states would see it, filtering people. So always, you know, sifting the deserving from the undeserving, um, the wanted from the unwanted and so on. I mean, that has parallels in ways, for example, Britain at the moment deals with... Um, you know, people who need help from the welfare state, for example. So it's, it's, it's more than just to do with migration. But um, for those reasons, what I've tried to show in, in my writing about what we normally call the refugee crisis is that it was mu as much a border crisis as it was a refugee crisis. That wasn't just a case of, um, you know, Europe being this kind of unsullied territory and then suddenly some disaster happening elsewhere that we're not too clear about why and then all these people suddenly arrived on Europe's doorstep having nothing to do with Europe and the problem, as it were, was their arrival. Actually, what's been going on in the last couple of decades is this process whereby, you know, the European Union has been trying to bring down borders internally and give free movement to its own citizens and... and the trade-off of that has been a much tougher and more complex border system set up around the edges of the EU. Why does that follow? I don't know. What's the logical connection there between loose, you know, Schengen and the loosening of internal European borders? And well, it's it's because you have this kind of double border system where states want to retain control of their own right. national borders. Right. But they've opened them internally within the European Union. But the margins. So the ones at the edges become not only the border of, say, Greece or Spain or Italy, but that's also the, ed the edge of the whole European Union. <laughs> and what the EU has done in the last 15 to 20 years is to sign treaties with states outside of Europe to, to kind of co-opt them as border cops on, on Europe's behalf. <laughs> Um, it's increased all of the militarisation and security around that external border of the European Union. And, you know, in most cases, this is intended simply to deny people entry, but with people claiming asylum because of refugee law, they can't do that. So there's this system within the EU that's supposed to um, determine where asylum seekers stay, where they can and can't go, which, um, you know, country has the responsibility of processing their asylum claims. 
And the cumulative effect of all of that over the last couple of decades has been to close off easier, safe and legal routes for people who want to claim asylum to get into the EU and then to create this incredibly dysfunctional system within Europe itself where resources don't go to where they're needed, people are treated effectively like cattle, penned up, um, you know, held in various forms of containment, whether that's detention centres or camps or simply accommodation that is deliberately segregated from, from the community with it, within which it's situated. Yeah, they surface as inconveniences, almost. That's what that comes across as a, <laughs> a, a problem that no-one knows how to even conceptualise. And also, the other fallout of what you're describing there in terms of systematised borders, and it's an interesting figure in there about the amount spent on border control as opposed to the care of vulnerable people, is, of course, people smuggling, isn't it? That, that's almost a product of the complicated border setup. Yeah, I mean, people smuggling often gets painted as just this kind of evil, organised crime uh, activity that, that exists because there are bad people who want to exploit desperate and vulnerable migrants, but it exists because it's a reaction to obstacles that are put in the way of people who feel they absolutely have to move, even when they're told they're not allowed to. And it's also can range, you know, it can be groups of traffickers who are exploiting people and treating them incredibly badly. It can also be people on the move helping one another, forming kind of ad hoc networks to help, you know, collectively achieve a particular goal. The way in which you wonder about things here are through the stories of persons, yeah? A cast of individuals whose stories overlap and interestingly converge on the similar sets of problems of how to almost penetrate this labyrinthine system. Um, you're suspicious a bit of using stories, or at least how stories are utilised by the media in the last few years. I'm, I'm, think, I'm thinking particularly of uh, the young Syrian lad, Alan Kurdi, that was found on the shores and briefly became uh, sensational to many people and then was forgotten. What's your take on this as to how... What's your worry about telling stories, the limits of sympathy for those stories, and how you've tried to encounter stories in your reporting here? Um, well, I, th I think there's a... I think it's very obvious when um, stories surrounding migration or surrounding refugees have got malicious intent, what is being done there. Um, you know, I think everybody has an image of how, say, the Daily Mail would, would characterise asylum seekers or characterise refugees. Um, but the, the sort of the, the other side of that, the, the stories that are intended to evoke sympathy, um, I think can have quite damaging effects as well, or just, just not sort of tell a complete enough picture to, to be able to build something out of it. And I think particularly in, in 2015 when the refugee crisis was, was the, the kind of biggest global story for, for several months, you saw certain patterns that I think showed this. So news organisations rushing to each different flashpoint of the crisis, for example, but not doing very much work to draw links between them and show the pattern of what was happening, show that system I was trying to describe earlier that was contributing to the crisis itself. And then the the particular mode of storytelling about people in these situations, which I think of as a kind of humanitarian storytelling 
uh, mode, which is to, I mean, the crudest example of which is if you adverts on public transport encouraging people to donate to charity that have got a picture of a, very often a child looking sad and saying, this is so-and-so, they're having a bad time, give us the money to help them. And, um, you know, there are more sophisticated versions of doing that, but I think that's a way of telling those stories that, that is quite widespread. And I think it rests on the assumption that what you need to do is to tell your audience about someone having a really terrible experience and that will provoke a sort of empathetic reaction in them that will lead to some kind of positive action out of it. And I think, um, I think often that doesn't work. I think that certainly, for me at least, if you define people simply by their trauma or their extreme hardship, what you're actually doing is, is and, and only that, what, what you can often do is alienate other people from them. I mean, there, there are people in my book who have told me at length about the kind of experiences they've had either on the way to Europe or within Europe that I think I just absolutely can't identify with that. I don't know what it would mm. feel like to go through it because it's, it's so different to what I've experienced in my life. Mm. And, then, and then the other really important part of it is that... Um, you know, going back to this question about language and categories and mm. the fact that there are these huge grey zones in between, you know, arrival and acceptance in Europe where people don't quite fit any of the ways in which they're being treated, that actually there's a kind of fuller and more complex picture there that, that really needs to be rendered to give people a full understanding of what's going on. And I think, you know, a kind of storytelling that just makes people out to be innocent and not have agency and to just fit a kind of pre-defined frame, well, it will work for people who are already sympathetic to the, you know, what you're trying to do, but it doesn't really do much beyond that, I think. Do you mind, could you, could you just read us one of the stories or a snippet of one of them? Yeah, um, I mean, the other thing that I think was important for me with this book, I, I went into it thinking I was going to do a book that essentially mapped out that border system around the edges of, of the European Union. And um, I started off doing the research in that way, but I really got drawn into the lives of people that I was meeting mm. and decided it was much more important to stay in long-term contact with people, and that's the way that I've written about it in the right, book. Right, so it hadn't started that way. You'd started almost wanting to look at it from a distance. Yeah, yeah. and I think I had a, probably a more instrumental view of those people you know or not these people but you know I would describe something that I thought was wrong and I would find people's testimonies to slot into my argument to back up what I was saying and the more I got to know people and see the situation I just thought that was completely inappropriate and and there was and false and false yeah indeed um and so what I did was just stay in touch with people, get to know them on the basis that they wanted to get to know me, so I didn't go sort of chasing after people and saying, tell me about the experiences you had, for example, in Libya or on, on your way across the Aegean Sea. I, I just would let, try and let a more organic relationship build up with people and then see where that went, and that's exactly the way that I've tried to then render it in the book. Over years with some of them? Um, yes. Yeah, I mean, my research <coughs> took five years or so, and there were people that I was in contact with for, for that whole period... Mm. Um, at, at the very least, it's people I was in contact with for sort of two years before, before writing the book. And I'll, I'll just read a bit about um, a young man originally from Sudan called Jamal, who I met in Calais in 2014, who had arrived in Europe. I mean, for, for me, his story really sums up this idea of these, these, this kind of grey zone and the way in which people can arrive in Europe, but then because of the way the system treats them, live in this prolonged kind of limbo. And he really opened my eyes to the kind of effects that would have on people and the way in which they would 
try to retain their own ability to make decisions and, and take control of their lives. And um, he was in Greece for about four or five years before he even reached Calais. He was then in Calais for a few months, trying to get into the UK, eventually gave up and went elsewhere. And um, in the destination he reached, I, I went to catch up with him there a couple of years ago, and we sat down and, and talked for three days straight, where he, we basically went through... He wanted to tell me his whole life story, effectively. Um, you know, from childhood up to, up to the point we were at. And I'm just going to read a few pages from the very end of that encounter with him. Jamal had almost reached the end of his story as we sat beside the river in the town he now called home. It was nearly evening, and he invited me back to his apartment one more time to make dinner. In the kitchen, we made a potato stew with onions, paprika, and rice. We used to eat this in Calais, he said. If we found meat, then we'd put meat in it, too. Rihanna songs played from his phone as we chopped the vegetables. A lot of his Sudanese friends had got into R&B and hip-hop since they'd arrived in Europe, Jamal said. He laughed as he told me a story about a friend who was now in the UK. When he texts me, he's always like, yo, 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 why can't you just say hello or hi? <laughs> I asked Jamal again about the sequence of events that had brought him from Calais to this northern European country. He didn't want to go into detail. He didn't yet feel secure enough in his new home. But I suggested he could tell me just enough so that my readers would understand the dysfunction in Europe's asylum system, to give them a sense of the gulf between the way states try to regulate movement and the messy, rea messy reality of life. He agreed to try. After a friend of mine crossed to England, Jamal said, I started to become calm in my mind, and I said, let me try something while I'm taking a break from chasing after lorries. At a squat in Calais, he had made friends with an Eritrean man. We would meet at the squat. Every time I went there to charge my phone, I would speak to him. Jamal didn't want the other Sudanese refugees to know he was meeting up with an Eritrean because, he said, if I get caught talking to him, people will say I'm causing problems. The rule Jamal was so proud of, don't tell anybody what you're doing until you do it, was in play. As he had done with older Sudanese refugees he'd met in Greece, Jamal used his new friendship to educate himself, learning the names of other places in Europe where a young man like him might get a better deal. After being rejected by many of the other Sudanese refugees in Calais because he was from a different ethnic group, Jamal wasn't as keen as he used to be to join the diaspora in the UK. Perhaps he would fare better elsewhere. Based on what his new friend had told him, he chose another country. Jamal left Calais and went back to Paris. He was taken aback to see how many more people there were sleeping rough under the railway tracks. In February, it was now July, there were only 30 of us, now it was around 100. He spent three days in Paris, mainly in internet cafes, researching his new destination while he waited for his sister to wire him some money. On the third day in Paris, Jamal phoned a contact who said he could arrange transport for a few hundred euros. Jamal made a playlist for the journey on his phone. Sean Paul, Jennifer Lopez, Rihanna, and a lot of English rappers since I was going away from England. In Paris, the Sudanese contact met him and took him to a train station. There, he was shown to a waiting car. One man sat in the driver's seat. Two men who spoke Syrian Arabic sat in the back. The driver wasn't Sudanese, Jamal said. He wasn't French either, but I don't know where he was from because he didn't speak to me at all during the journey. 
When the driver stopped for a break, he would write out a note in English on the dashboard, telling the passengers how long they could get out of the car for. After some time, the car stopped and the two Syrian men got out. Jamal and his driver continued, still without speaking. Jamal had his playlist. I kept listening to Loki's Dear England, he said. Do you know that song? I didn't, so I asked him to play it to me. He paused Rihanna midway through American Oxygen and switched to Dear England. It was a melancholy track with lyrics about police brutality, about military intervention overseas, and treasures looted from the empire and displayed in the British Museum. When Jamal reached his destination, he wandered around until he found some police officers who could tell him where the nearest asylum reception centre was. I got there, they took all my details, my date of birth, my nationality. I stayed there three or four days, then they sent me to a camp. At the camp, he applied for asylum. He was interviewed. The interviewers asked him questions about his home country, his reasons for leaving, why he hadn't stayed put elsewhere. He answered their questions, hoping that they would satisfy criteria his interviewers did not let him see. They called him in for a second interview and asked him all the same questions again. He answered them again. Then Jamal received a letter saying his application had been accepted. The last time I had a passport was when I was in Sudan, and that was a false passport so I could get out of Sudan, Jamal said. That was the first passport I ever got. Now I'll have a real one. My passport here will be my first real one. I will not be afraid of everything in my head. I hardly knew Jamal, and yet he told me his story in such detail. His whole adult life, he arrived in Europe when he was 18, up to this point, had been shaped by systems for protection, for deciding who deserves which resources and where, that weren't working as they should. Instead, he'd had to build small networks of friends or acquaintances with whom he shared temporary goals and use those to survive. Why then did he trust me, and why did I trust him back? While we were waiting for the stew to finish cooking, Jamal described how, in the evenings, at the Sudanese camp behind the supermarket in Calais, men would sit around the fire and try to burn off their fingerprints. They were mutilating themselves to avoid detection by the European police database so that they could make an asylum claim in France while trying to reach the UK at the same time. You put one end of a metal pole in the fire, Jamal said, and wait for it to go red hot. Then you take it out and run your fingertips along the glowing end, one by one, for an hour or two, until they're too blistered to be recognised by a scanning machine. Like this, he said, grabbing my hand and pressing it into the handle of the fridge door. He pushed my index finger into the metal and ran it downwards firmly two or three times. What's, I mean, what's revelatory about that is the, <clears throat> that act reflects a desperation, which impossible to in any way type as some kind of glib <laughs> I need to get to the UK for reasons that are soft people don't act like that unless they're acting out of utter desperation yeah that's true although I think they're also acting out of um, ambition desire curiosity you know all of the, all of the other things that, that would would govern the actions Anyone of people else? in different situations mm. and I think mm. one of one of the big one of the things that, that, that really irritates me in the way that refugees are discussed, and particularly the way the crisis was discussed in um, 2015 and 16, was this idea of people having a dream of Europe. Yeah. Um, that you saw both on uh, sort of 
well-meaning and hostile reactions to refugees. Oh, they've got this dream of Europe, this impossible dream, um, and we need to dispel their dream because the reality isn't like that. They're not all going to get these huge houses and benefits and jobs and the rest of it. Um, and that's a really self-aggrandizing yeah. myth, I think, this idea that we're, we're this kind of... Place, you know, yeah. yeah, castle on the hill and yeah. everyone is sort of trying to climb up and reach yeah. us. And actually, um, first of all, people, wh whether they've been displaced because of war and persecution and the things that are defined in, in documents like the Refugee Convention or because they're moving for other reasons, which might be a need to find work mm. or just they're very unhappy with their lives wherever they which are. Which we all do. Which we all do, yeah. indeed. Yeah. Um, that, that is a much more pragmatic set of decision-making and it's based on making choices in very limited circumstances. And then, particularly within Europe, because I think that's been one of the kind of big um, questions asked about people on the move in this way in the last few years, is, well, they're already in a safe country. Why are they still moving? You know, Calais is nowhere near the edges of the European Union. It's nowhere near Syria or Libya. But yet people are putting themselves through that kind of hardship there to get from France, which is in theory a safe country, to the UK. And... Um, if you only see it in terms of, oh, well, they've got this dream of Europe or dream of the UK or, uh, you know, another, another common theme is, oh, well, they're, they're trying to get something for nothing, it, it misses what is really going on, which is that they are people doing what people in other situations do and making their decisions based on often, you know, trying to be pragmatic with whatever information and power they have to hand. So Jamal, who I talked about, he had no idea about the UK really before he came to Europe. He spoke good English because he'd grown up watching American satellite TV, which already gave him a connection to it. You know, global culture yeah. dominated by the West <laughs> means people can see us when we can't see them, I think. But then when he arrived in Greece, these other Sudanese refugees he met who were a bit more sort of worldly wise and educated and older said, well, we're all going to the UK because the UK was the colonial power in Sudan. Yes. So they're bound to treat us well because they'll have a connection to us. Yes. And I mean... I think that's a perfect example of, you know, not only there being this existing connection and, and quite clear chain of responsibility towards people that Britain or other European powers might want to deny, but just this idea of they already see us and, and yet that isn't really reciprocated. So there's but they all see us in terms of our very proximate history of colonialism, but also the fact we're not uncontributory to the wars they're fleeing from. Yeah. Politically and in terms of an arms trade. Yeah, I mean, I, to, to give an example of um, somebody else I write about in the book, book um, an Iraqi woman called Zainab, who also passed through Calais um, around the same time as Jamal, but she came with her three young children, um, was stuck there for, for five months and was, I mean, in, in a lot of danger when she was there, um, and eventually got through to the UK, but not without coming very close to her and her, her family dying on... on on a, on a lorry on the way there. Um, the way... So you could hear from the way I described the story with Jamal. It was us sitting down for several days and, and talking through everything. With Zainab, her English wasn't very strong when I first met her. So I asked her to... Um, I gave her my dictaphone and just said, well, just tell the story of your journey here in the way that you want to in Arabic, and I will get that translated. And... Um, I then did a follow-up interview where I asked a few questions for clarity, but right at the end of that follow-up interview, I said, um, was there anything else you want readers to know about this? And she said, yeah, I'm, I mean, since I've arrived in England, I, I'm constantly surprised by people saying, why are refugees coming here? And I just want to tell people, don't you know you are already in our country? You know, and this is not, I suppose, something that I maybe hadn't, 
considered fully at the beginning of this research process was the fact that this isn't just a morality tale for, for us here. Like those, the, the people that I write about don't exist in order to make us better people or fix things politically here. So to take Iraq, for example, yes, Britain has been a major contributor to the chaos and collapse in Iraq we're seeing at the moment because it took part in the invasion of 2003. Um, but, you know, the people that are fleeing that might have all sorts of different attitudes to that. Mm. Zainab's husband worked with the Americans, mm. for example. Mm. Um, she is very angry about it, but also feels a connection to Britain. Mm. Um, for them also, it was a more, you know, that was kind of the third time in a century that Britain had tried to occupy Iraq. And for them, it was both a kind of political responsibility Britain had, but a cultural connection. Mm. I, I connection, had, yeah. Yeah. 20 seconds, solutions. <laughs> Well, I mean, in terms of political solutions, accepting that, I think states need to accept that people will move and shape migration policies around that. Um, a large part of the crisis in Europe was based on people not sincerely um, following the principles of refugee protection or funding asylum reception um, systems properly. But I think, you know, that sounds easy, but the problem is we've got a huge right-wing nationalist backlash in Europe that is making that very difficult to put forward. I think it's absolutely crucial that people carry on arguing for that. But I think this is a much longer-term thing where um, we really need to think about the way in which we're interacting with other pe people from other parts of the world, the, the lack of space we give to those people's voices, and to try and, try and kind of build a culture where we see these kind of connections and they become part of our everyday life as well, because at the moment I think they're not see the connections and recognise our own culpability within them? Yeah, culpability yeah. or the fact that this fantasy that you can just wall off a rich part yeah. of the world and maintain a kind of racial privilege in doing, doing that is, is completely false. Daniel Trilling. Thank you. Thank you.